0: Awesome. Well, you probably have already figured it out. I am not Pastor Will. My name is Chris, and I'm the college pastor here at Brazos Fellowship, and it is great to be with you this morning. I've been on staff here at the church for about six years, and I wanted to show you a picture of my family this amazing woman right here is my beautiful wife, Alicia. We have been married for a little over nine years, and we have two awesome little girls. So Landry, the oldest, will be three in a couple of weeks, and then Campbell, our little baby, she just turned one on Friday. So as you can imagine, things in our house are always a little bit crazy, And there's a whole lot of love, and we love it and can't imagine it any other way. Now, Pastor Will's going to be back next Sunday. He's going to be kicking off a new series called The Blessing. Now, when we were kids, we were always looking for our dad's approval, right? We wanted his blessing on every decision we made, everything that we did, or, or, or maybe your story was different, your dad wasn't in the picture, and you knew something was missing naturally. But the good news is that it doesn't matter what your background is. We have a Heavenly Father that wants to give us His blessing in our life. And that is a game changer. It can change everything about your story. So make sure you come back next week as we kick off this new series. Now today, I want to take a few minutes and share with you about what God has been doing in my heart over the last few months. I've been on this journey, finally coming to a place where I can start to be honest about who I really am on the inside. See, I've had a lot of different experiences in my life, things that have happened, things that I have said, things that I have done to people, and and honestly, even things that people have done to me. And all of these things have created this sense of shame in my life. And what's crazy, and maybe you can relate to this, I let that shame build a wall, and for so much of my life, I have hidden behind the shame of my decisions or my circumstances. And I let that shame begin to mask and disguise how other people see me. Maybe even worse, I let it mask and disguise how I see myself. Shame is, is so nasty. I think everyone in this room, at some point in your story, you have to deal with it. You have to struggle and work through Shame. It doesn't care about your bank account. It, it doesn't care about your address. Shame is an equal opportunity employer. And maybe for you, it was an experience that you had. Maybe, maybe somebody did something to you. They took advantage of you and, and shame entered your story. And it built up this wall. But not only does it influence how other people see you and even how you see yourself, what's scary is if we're not careful... Shame will begin to influence who we're becoming. But what if it didn't have to be like that? What if there was a better way? This morning, I want to look at a story about a woman named Rahab. And and when we jump into the text, there are these two Israelite spies, and they've come into Rahab's hometown, and they're in her hometown of Jericho, and and not only are they in Jericho, they actually find themselves in Rahab's house, and they're carrying on a conversation with her. When we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 12, says this, now then, please swear to me by the Lord, this is Rahab talking, that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. And it continues, give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house that she lived in was a part of the city wall. Now, we don't know a lot about Rahab, but we know a few things. The first thing we know about Rahab is her occupation. Rahab was a prostitute. Sorry, parents, if you brought your kids in with you this morning, you can take them and check them in in Wambaland or Upstreet, our kids' environments. But, but we know Rahab's occupation. We also know her hometown. Rahab lived in Jericho. Now Jericho wasn't a very big city. It's about 1,500, 2,000 people, but Jericho was really famous. See, Jericho was surrounded by a wall, a really tall, really thick wall, surrounded the entire city. It was it was considered impenetrable, but God had promised to deliver Jericho into the hands of the Israelites, and so these spies come into Jericho to scout out the land. Now I wanted to take a minute. To recreate a little bit of the space of where Rahab would have lived, we we know that she had a window, right? Verse 15 said that her house was a part of the city wall, so her window looked out, outside of Jericho. It's life outside of the city. And then we can also assume that she had a door, right? And that the door looks into Jericho. It's where the business of the city happens. It's the comings and goings. And, and in this space that exists between the window and the door, this is where Rahab lived. We all have a place where we live. I'm not talking about your physical address or your home. I mean, we have a place where we live in our heart. We have a place where we live in our head. And, and today, if you were to zoom in and look at some of the places where I live, I'm not sure I want you to see all of those. There are some ugly places, and y'all seem like nice people, but I'm not sure I want you to see everything that goes on in my life, and so some of those places I put behind the door. I think we all have these places in our life, right? We all have those few things that we're like, eh, not sure I want people to see that. I'm going to keep that behind the door. Now, Now, the window, oh, the window, we're fine with people seeing what's going on in the window, right? It's like, hey how are you doing? Check out this vacation I went on. You you like my new jacket, right? Our kids smiled for the picture and we posted on social media. This is the stuff we're totally okay with people seeing, but but then our kids pitch a fit. It's like, no, that's not going in the window. Um, Had a bad day at work. I got into it with my coworker. I gave him a piece of my mind and all of a sudden I end up behind the door because I don't want people to know that that's going on. I don't want people to know my kids aren't perfect. And sure, I may poke my head out every once in a while, just making sure y'all are still here. Okay, cool. But we go back behind the closed door and it's in this space that we feel like a failure. It's behind the closed door where we keep our addictions and and we begin to convince ourselves that if people could see what happened behind the door, if people could see what we kept hidden, they wouldn't love us anymore. Except the longer we stay behind the door... The longer we stay behind shame, the easier it is for us to get stuck and trapped in that place. Now, I'm going to put myself out there for you for a minute. I was trying to think of some stories where I experienced shame early in my life that I could share with you. And there were a few things that stuck out. I remember I was in maybe the 6th or 7th grade. And there was this church trip that I really wanted to go on. And I was excited. I went home. I told my parents all about this trip, and and they were really supportive. I grew up in a Christian home, but I got done telling them about this trip, and and they looked at me, and they're like, Chris, we're we're really sorry, but we can't afford it. You're, You're not gonna be able to go on the trip. Obviously, I was bummed, and I went back to church. The youth pastor pulled me aside. He's like, hey, Chris, are you gonna be able to go with us on this trip? And it's interesting, because my response in that moment indicated that I knew something was off, because I lied to him. I looked at him and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to go on this trip. My mom said I have a lot of stuff to do that weekend. I, I, I have to mow the grass. I didn't tell him the truth. I felt shame in that moment. Now, here's the deal. I didn't feel shame because I lied. I lied because I felt shame, right? In that moment, I felt this shame. And, and the youth pastor looks at me and he's like, hey, hey, Chris, I, I don't know if this would help But I have a scholarship. I'd love to give you this scholarship to go on the trip if that would make a difference. And and I remember thinking, "Aren't, aren't scholarships for poor people? And then it hit me. That's me. Instantly, I felt less than. It wasn't true. But I felt like I wasn't as good as the rest of the kids that could pay their own way. I felt like a piece of clothing on the clearance rack that nobody wanted. I can think of another time in my life where I felt a lot of shame. Now, I tried really hard to come up with some funny stories to tell you this morning because people like funny stories because they're funny. And I like it when people laugh with me, not at me, okay, but I like it when people laugh with me. And so I wanted to come up with some funny stories, but, but funny and shame don't really seem to go together very often, do they? I remember another time where I felt a lot of shame in my life probably the biggest moment of shame, and it was when my dad discovered that I had an addiction to pornography. Talk about shame. I felt like my dad was ashamed of me. And right behind the door I went. And I went and I hid and I let shame wreck me. Now, there's a difference between guilt and shame. You see, guilt can be a really good thing. Guilt says, I'm sorry for what I did. Like, that's a pattern that's established in a healthy relationship. Guilt can be great, but shame, shame says, I'm sorry for who I am. Guilt looks at my behavior. Shame is an indictment on my character. Guilt is a gift that God gives us for reconciliation in relationships. But, but shame is a lie that's meant to destroy us and to wreck us. And guilt can be such a beautiful thing. And in a healthy relationship, here's, here's the language that guilt looks like in a healthy relationship. Someone comes to you and they say, hey, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I want you to practice that, okay? Turn to the person next to you. Maybe you came with them. Maybe you've never met them before. But I want you to look at them and say, hey, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Go ahead, do that now. <sighs> Did that feel good? Right? Now, some of y'all, some of y'all needed that because you got in a fight in the parking lot on your way in. So you're welcome, okay? <laughs> that can be really healthy. Like guilt causes us to say, hey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And that can be such a healthy thing in a healthy relationship. And when someone comes to you and they say that, hey, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? This, is, this should be our response. This is a healthy response. Hey, thank you for saying that. I forgive you. Go ahead, try that. Thank you for saying that. I forgive you. Look at the person next to you. This is the moment. Catch this. This is really important. This moment right here is a defining moment because what can be really healthy and really beautiful can also be the moment where everything goes off the tracks and it can be so destructive. Because the way it is received is the way it is repeated. The way something is received is the way it's repeated. And so when our spouse comes to us and they tell us, man, I'm really struggling, I messed up again, and we look at them and we say, how dare you? How could you do this to our family? What were you thinking? Who do you think you are? In that moment, we push them behind the door. We piled shame on them. We told them that they were a bad person, right? The way it's received is the way it's repeated. And so even though it can be really healthy, it can be really bad. Because shame goes out of its way to convince us not only did you do something bad, you are bad. You didn't just make a bad choice, you're a bad person. Shame comes at at the strangest moments, too. You can feel like everything's going great. Man, you're just... Trucking along, you feel like you have everything in check, and then you're just having a random conversation with someone that you see in the parking lot. And you feel good, and then they they look at you a certain way, or they make an innocent comment, but in that moment, you're like, Oh my gosh, they know. They know what I've been trying to keep hidden behind the door. They know the shame that I'm carrying. They know the addiction that I've been struggling with. They think that I'm a fraud and they're judging me for it. Here's an example of shame. Now, this is a hypothetical, okay? My wife's sitting right over there. I'm not saying that this has ever happened to me, but your wife asks you to go to the grocery store and pick up some sugar, right? And you're like, I got this. I don't need to write it down. It's just little white packets, so just go get some sugar. So you go to the grocery store, and you're a little hungry, which is never a good thing when you go to the grocery store, am I right? And so you get there and you walk in and you see all the possibilities. It's like, man, this could be really good. And you start going down the aisle, throwing your favorite things into the cart. And of course, we have bacon and Doritos and you can't forget the Dr. Pepper. And, and so you were walking, maybe I'm the only one this has happened to, you're, you're walking to check out, right? And by the grace of God, all of a sudden you have this epiphany and you remember, oh, wait, 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 my wife, Asked me to come to the grocery store for something. <laughs> what, what was it? Um, I can't text her because if I text her, I will never hear the end of it. She'll say, you should have just written it down. Knew you this was going to happen, right? So I can't text her. Okay, it wasn't bread. I just got milk last week. What was it? Sweetener. Whew. Whew breathe a sigh of relief, and you go to the aisle where all the sweetener is, and you're scanning the shelves, trying to remember exactly what you're supposed to get, and then it catches your eye, and you grab the box, you put it in the cart, and it's sweet and low. Pink packets, right? That's what you're here for. So you get home, and you're proud of yourself, because you had a mission, and you killed it right? You put the groceries on the counter and you and your wife joke around because you got bacon and Doritos because those taste good together, right? And so you're having this moment and everything's great. And then she pulls out the sweetener, and She's like, what's this? And you're like, that's what you sent me to the store for? She's like, no, it's not. And then you're like, well, then you should have been more specific. She says, you always do this. You never get it right. And you're like, I can never please you. How did something so simple turn toxic so quickly? And out of frustration, here you go. Back behind the door, you slam it on your way through, and you're like, man, I can never please her. I'm a failure. I never get it right. I'm a terrible husband. Like, all of a sudden, the language shifts, doesn't it? And it becomes personal, because shame wants to make it personal. It's not about what you did. It's about who you are. If you've ever watched a, a football game where they, like, miked up the coach, right, and you can kind of get a behind-the-scenes look, if you miked up shame in this instance, this is what I think it would sound like. In the grocery store, shame is talking to the husband. Hey, you can't text her. You'll just reinforce the idea that she can't trust you. Just go with your gut. Never a good decision, right? And then you get home, and shame is, is on the wife of the shoulder, Or the shoulder of the wife. That would be weird. It's on the shoulder of the wife. And and it says, hey, he knows you've been struggling with self-esteem and body image. He noticed you started wearing a size larger in your clothes. He got sweet and low because he thinks you're fat. (laughs) What? Like, no. how How did we get there? Now, maybe I'm the only one that can jump to those extremes. I don't know. But... What happened? Shame was exposed. And we begin to project how we feel about ourselves onto someone else. Shame is divisive. Shame seeks to destroy you. Shame is linked to rates of depression and anger and addiction, eating disorders, suicide. Shame wants you to give up wants you to throw in the towel. It wants you to quit on life. And maybe you're here today, and this is a last resort for you. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, God, I need you to give me a sign because I can't do this anymore. I don't know how I'm going to cope. I don't know how I'm going to make it through. God, can you give me a sign? And I'm here to tell you that this is your sign. If you are struggling under the weight of shame and you want to give up, don't. Let somebody into your story because what if... What if you began to discover that, yes, there's something going on in your story. There's a reason that shame exists, a mistake you've made or an addiction that you have. Maybe it was completely out of your control. Maybe somebody did something to you. They, They took advantage of you. But what if? What if you began to discover that who you are is enough? I think that this is part of why God sent the spies to Rahab. I think Rahab was ready to give up. I mean, think about it. She was a prostitute, right? We know what prostitutes do. What we don't know is why she was a prostitute. I think we assume that we know, but we don't know. Was she a prostitute by choice? Was she trying to provide for her family? Was she forced to be a prostitute? We see people in tough situations, and most of the time we assume they made that decision. They need to live with the consequences of the decisions that they've made. But we don't know her story. But here's what we do know. We know that every day, guys came in and out of the store. And every time they left, they took a piece of her dignity with them. And every day, She moved further away from the window, from the hope of what could be, from from the vision of a better life. And she moved further and further behind the closed door, feeling trapped and convincing herself this is all I'll ever be. Because shame wants to define you. Shame wants to speak for you. So the Israelite spies come in to Jericho. They're there to scout out the land that God has promised them, and and they have one job, right? They're spies, and they come in, and they're supposed to get some recon. They come in, look around, and get out. Everything's going great until nightfall. All of a sudden, Jericho gets closed up tight, and they're still inside, and they have to be freaking out a little bit, right? Because at this point, they're like, if we get caught, man, we're done. So they're looking for an alternate way to escape, and they end up at Rahab's house. Now, the text doesn't tell us why they ended up at Rahab's house. Did they know she was a prostitute? I did a little research. If you heard the term red light district, so it's an area of town in certain parts of the world where like, there are red lights on the buildings and if the red light is on, it tells you they're open for business and it's like some kind of you know, sex house or brothel or whatever. Well, before there were red lights, there were red cords. And they would take this red cord, and they would hang it on the door to say they were open for business, and so the spies knew exactly who Rahab was. Everyone in Jericho knew who Rahab was. There's a knock on the door. Rahab opens the door, probably assuming it's her first customers for the night, and she lets them into her home, and they begin having a conversation, and at some point, Rahab realizes something, something is different about these guys. They, they're not like everyone else that's coming here. They don't seem like they want to take something from me. She starts to have a little bit of hope. Maybe, maybe something could be different. Maybe today is the day that everything changes. And the story continues in Joshua 2, verse 17. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the street and are killed, it it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. Rahab is about to let the spies escape through the window. And for her kindness, the Israelite spies agree to spare her life and to spare the life of her family. This is a pretty good deal, right? But they tell her, hey, we need a sign, Rahab. We don't know the layout of Jericho very well. And when we come back to conquer the city, we want to make sure that we have the right house. And so we need a sign. If you could take that red rope and you could hang it in the window, then we'll know we're in the right place. Now, Rahab has a tough decision to make because certainly she wants safety. She wants to save her family. But I got to think she is questioning, can there be anything else that I put in the window? Like, could I put a potted plant, maybe a nice cactus, right? Could, could I hang a bed sheet from the window? Like anything but the red cord? You see, the red cord was a sign of her shame, The red cord was what she had been identified as for so long. And and she has to be thinking, this is my moment. Like, I can redefine myself. When when the Israelites come into Jericho, they don't know who I am. And if there's some other way to identify myself, then, then, man, I could rewrite my story. It's no longer about who I used to be. It's who I choose to be. Except this red cord that had identified Rahab for so long... The thing that had marked her life, God wanted to use this red cord as a sign of his salvation. So she hung it in the window. She put herself out of business. A few days later, the Israelites come over the hill. They're approaching Jericho. They can see it in the distance, and all of a sudden, something catches their eye, and they're like, that's the red cord. Hey, Joshua, that's the woman. That's Rahab. She, she saved our life. Make sure that we protect her home. That's the red cord. And man, we see this all throughout history. God has done this over and over and over. He takes people's signs of shame and he uses them to show his salvation. He takes people that are completely broken and he uses them to do extraordinary things. And then we get to the story of Jesus. And once again, God took the ultimate sign of shame, the cross. See, the cross wasn't a cool piece of jewelry to wear around your neck. Like, it was a torture device. It was a means of execution. It was the ultimate sign of shame in Jesus' day. It it was so demoralizing because, yes, obviously you were about to die, and that was definitely the worst part, but it was the way that you died. They would crucify you, and then they would hang you on the side of the road, and sometimes it would take days for people to die, and the crowd would walk by and mock them and spit on them. It was completely demoralizing and shameful, and God said, I want to take that. I want to take that sign of shame, and I want to use it to show my salvation, And it's with that in mind that the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before you, that thing that has caused shame in your life. That you have hidden behind, that has marked you for so long, that addiction that keeps tripping you up, that keeps vying for your attention, that keeps making life difficult. The, the author is saying, hey, that thing, there's so many people that have gone before you. There's so much hope in the story of Jesus. Step out from behind that thing, don't let it define you anymore. Go run the race. I started thinking about the cloud of witnesses that are mentioned in this verse. And the author is talking about the previous chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. And there's this laundry list of people of faith. Incredible stories of people that God has used to do miraculous things. Stories like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Stories like Moses. People that changed entire generations And rewrote history. And God inserted someone else's story into that same list. Check it out. Hebrews 11.31 says, It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You mean that God can use a story like Rahab? He can use the story of a prostitute? And he can put it in the faith hall of fame? Like, is that even possible? Yeah. Because Rahab made a decision. She made a decision to take the thing that had marked her life, the thing that had defined her, it was a sign of her shame. And she made the decision to no longer hide behind it, but to let God use it as a sign of his salvation. This was the ultimate step of faith for Rahab putting herself out of business, putting it all on the line. But she made the decision, and this is how the author of Hebrews continues in Hebrews 12 too. We do this. We we step out from behind our shame. We get past the things that so easily trip us up. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Check it out. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. This is what God wants to do in your life and in my life. God doesn't care about your story. It doesn't matter what caused the shame. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made or what you've held on to. It doesn't matter what someone else has done to you or that you have chosen to hide behind shame up until today. God offers a better way. You see, God takes our shame and uses it as a sign of his salvation. This isn't just a story about Rahab, this is a story about you and me. God takes our shame, our story, our flaws, our mistakes, and he uses it as a sign of his salvation. This summer I was reading a book by Donald Miller called Scary Close, and in it there was this quote, I have to trust that my flaws are the way through which I will receive grace. We don't think of our flaws as the glue that binds us to the people we love, but they are grace only sticks to our imperfections those who can't accept their imperfections can't accept grace either you have a choice to make you can continue to let shame cover you you can continue to try and hide your flaws or you can let God write salvation and redemption into your story This is how the story of Rahab ends, Joshua 2 verse 21. Agreed, she said, let it be as you say. There were a lot of things that were said about Rahab. And there are a lot of things that have been said about you and said about me. Words of shame that were meant to destroy us. Things like fat, ugly, worthless, disappointment, broken, used. Not good enough. Those are words that have been spoken over you, that have meant to bring shame, that have been meant to make you give up, but there is a better word being spoken over you today. God says, I love you. God says you have value. God says that even though he knows your story, you still have worth. God, let it be as you say. The verse continues. Agreed, she said. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. We want to hide our shame. We want to keep it tucked away. We want to live life behind the closed door. But freedom is found when we no longer hide.